this uh, idea of faith, as uh, he described in verse 1, it is the uh, thing that gives us uh, conviction about things we've not seen, and it's the foundation that lies beneath our hopes. And really the things that he tells us about faith as he illustrates that show uh, that aspect, those aspects of faith. So we just looked at Abraham from 8 through 19, uh, the faith of Abraham almost past, present, and future as he turned his back on his past when he left his homeland, as he sacrificed in the present, living in tents in a foreign land, and was willing to sacrifice his future, willing to uh, kill Isaac uh, because God told him to. So, 20 to 22. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Okay, so you've just got some brief statements about the other uh, patriarchs. What did Isaac do by faith? Blessed Jacob and Esau. Now, why did that take faith? Yes, he was telling them about things in their future that God had promised, but that he had never seen. You know, it was just because he trusted what God said that he was able to pass on those blessings to them. What about Jacob? What did he do? Yes, do you remember that? Yes. Who were the sons of Joseph? Yeah, and which one was the older? And which one got the higher blessing? Yeah. And how did he know that? Well, it's by God's uh, decree, by God's word, not because he'd seen the outcome yet. And then Joseph. This is even more impressive, I think. We remember where Joseph was when he died. In Egypt. But what did he do? What did he say? When they left Egypt, he wanted his bones taken back to take them. <clears throat> and so that's going to be like 400 years later. So he's saying God's going to take them out. Yes. He tells the family that whenever it is that they leave Egypt, he wants his bones preserved and taken and buried back in the promised land. Now how did he know they were going to go back to that land? promised it. Yeah. There's nothing that he'd seen that would indicate it. In fact, they were doing very well in Egypt. There's no particular reason to imagine they'd ever want to go back to that land. And yet God had said they would. He believed they would. And so he actually, by faith, says, here's what I want you to do with my bones. And isn't this sort of uh, an illustration of the kind of faith we need to have? Because instead of Joseph seeing Egypt as home, he still sees the promised land as his home. That's where he eventually wants to go to, even though he's had a whole lot of success down in Egypt. So often when we have success in this world, we're tempted to see it as home and not even see the promised land as our home. We sort of settle down, put our roots here, and quit seeing ourselves as a stranger and pilgrim here. Joseph shows that he still realized that the homeland was the promised land, 
not where he was gaining success in Egypt. Do you have some thoughts and comments about that? I think that's kind of cool. And really, who is tested more uh, in terms of their faith? The man who doesn't accomplish very much in life or the man who's very successful in life? I think a lot of times the bigger test is being successful and still maintaining the faith in God. You know, when things are going terribly, well, you know, maybe there's not a whole lot else. Might as well trust in God. But when things are going well like they did for Joseph, and for him still to have that kind of faith in God is impressive. Right, anything you want to say through verse 22? All right, look at the next major illustration of faith. Really, there are two major ones in, in Hebrews 11, Abraham and uh, Moses, 23 to 29. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, but he was not, for he was looking for reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured it, seeing him who was unseen. By faith, by faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. So you've got Moses' faith, first the faith of his parents to hide the beautiful child, but then Moses' faith. And this is really an impressive example, and I think probably helpful for the Hebrews. What were some of the things that Moses gave up? Yeah. The position of being Pharaoh's grandson. You know, I don't know, but what would you assume would have perhaps been possible for someone who was Pharaoh's grandson? You would think that maybe there would have been some scenario in which he could have become a future Pharaoh. And how important, how impressive were the Pharaohs? They were worshipped. Yeah, they were worshipped. And really, probably, wouldn't you say in this period Egypt was as strong as any nation in the world? You know, certainly had as strong a history, but they're still very superpower in, in Moses' day. You want to just turn your back on the uh, position of being Pharaoh's grandson? Wow, that's a lot to give up with so much potential with so much status. What else did he turn his back on? He probably didn't take much with him when he left, so he gave up everything. His house, his... <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> you know, exactly. I mean, you know, he talks about the treasures of Egypt in verse 26. Think about you know, what kind of treasures did the pharaohs have? Know much about that? They were buried with an awful lot of junk. Yeah, remember <laughs> all that? Yeah, I mean, they, wow, they were extremely rich. Would you, would you turn your back on all that? I mean, that's a lot. It would be like, 
can you imagine just uh, you know sort of abandoning the U.S. and going to live you know in a you know some um, city in India in the ghetto <laughs> with nothing you know living in some kind of a shanty town kind of existence you know getting food out of the garbage I mean really could you imagine doing that you know leaving all that we've got here just giving it up that was a lot to give up. You know, is it is it harder to give up your treasures if you have a little or if you have a lot? Yeah, I, I think so. The more you got, the harder it is to relinquish it. And Moses did. What else did he give up according to the text? His position, the treasures, what else? Yes, I'm thinking something else. What about in verse 25? The transitory pleasures of sin. Yeah. Look at all he could have done. I mean, all the pleasure that you could have. I mean, what couldn't you have done as Pharaoh's grandson? I mean, anything you want. Anything you want to do. You know, I mean, wow. And, I mean, you could probably have been pretty much as sinful as you wanted to be. And, and you know, enjoyed all the, all the whatever that you wanted to. Um, he gave all that up. The position, the pleasures, the treasures, for what did he give all that up? Ill treatment. Ill treatment with? People. Yeah. He was will. he gave that up to get treated badly with a bunch of slaves. That's, that's a challenging thing to do. You know, to give up all that to identify yourself with this group of hated slaves. Look back at 1025 where he says, not forsaking our own assembling together is the habit of some. Do you suppose some of them were forsaking that because they were they didn't want to be identified with the brethren who were undergoing reproach and hatred? Look also at uh, 10 uh, 20 or 1033 and 34. When at the end of 33 he says, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners, and so forth. You see, one of the challenges for these brethren is to identify themselves with the people who are being persecuted, with their brethren who are undergoing affliction. Look at Moses. By faith, he turned his back on everything to join in with this group of hated, poorly treated slaves. That's hard to do. What else did he... uh, what else did he choose? What does it say in 26 that he chose? The reproach of Christ. Yeah. Really, that's what it amounted to. I mean, he was reproached in the same way that Christ was. You know, suffering, abandoning everything, and going through the same sorts of trials and humiliations that Christ would. So he didn't get the kind of things out of this trade that you would expect you to get if you were going to give up all those treasures and pleasure and position. He gets all this, you know, persecution and affliction and suffering. and You know, he gets to be counted as one with the Jews. <laughs> That's really great, isn't it? Why did he do this? That was really foolish on his part, wasn't it? Since he was looking to the reward. What reward? Is there a reward out for doing this? Probably. Oh, like, you have to die on a mountain. Yeah. 
I mean, I think he had his eye on the unseen things. He, his faith gave him assurance of things that they hoped for. You know, he trusted in the Lord. And he believed that by doing this, there would be a reward. Even though he hadn't seen it, even though there's nothing visible to support that. It's just based on the Lord's word. But now you think about this. Do you know the name of Pharaoh's daughter? I'm not even sure what the name of this Pharaoh was. <laughs> but we know Moses' name, and so does a whole lot of other people in the world. You know, there are few names probably better known in the world. I mean, I suspect there's a, you know, there's probably a couple billion out of the six billion people in the world that know the name of Moses. I mean, isn't that amazing? <laughs> he had faith that there'd be a reward. And, uh, it kind of reminds you of uh, 12.2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, there's something to look forward to. Um, and, and, you know, do you remember that whole scenario with Moses? Maybe we need to go back and think about this just a second. I mean, when was it that Moses made that choice? Remember what all happened? When he was about 40. When he was about 40, what did he do? Saw his fellow people fighting with one another. Yes. And actually before that he'd seen an Egyptian beaten up an Israelite and he killed the Egyptian. You know, but and, and you might have thought that was sort of an impulsive thing. Maybe he just, you know, lost his temper or whatever. But really you find out here this was a deliberately made decision. He had decided that he was going to defend his people, that he was going to associate himself with them, that he was going to choose to do, uh, it says um, in Exodus 2.11, Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. That was, that was a real choice. He had decided that he wanted to join with his people. Now, was that very smart on his part? Doesn't look like it. What makes it smart? What's there's a there's a word in verse twenty-five that tells you why it was smart. passing. <laughs> see, all that stuff with Pharaoh wasn't going to last. Do you see that emphasis throughout this book? Look at 1034, uh, where he talks about, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Or look at 1227, where he says, uh, you know, uh, some of the things will be removed that can be shaken so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And in 1314, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. There's so much emphasis in the book whether or not it lasts, whether or not it remains. The, the, all that, that he had as Pharaoh's grandson was passing. That's what he saw. It wasn't going to last. That's what we've got to see when we have to make hard choices to give up things we really want. 
for the Lord, those things we really want won't last. This is an illustration I've used a bunch, some of you have heard it. But I think it illustrates the point, if we can really stop and reflect on this in our own life. What if I uh, were a rich man, and uh, I had about, you know, $100 million to give away? Any of you like to have that? Would you? I need to take her. All right, Shane wants it. All right, Shane, uh, I'll give you the $100 million. It's just one condition. Oh, there was always one condition. There's always a string attached. Yeah, here's the string. You can take that money, I'll give it to you today, and you can do anything you want to with it. Today, tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday. You can build, you can travel, you can buy, you can do anything you want to. But Friday night at midnight, you have to give all that back, plus everything you have now, and live like a beggar on the street for the rest of your life. What a deal. Yeah. You wouldn't take that, would you? No, not particularly. Why wouldn't you take that? Because you don't get any benefit from it and in fact you're off you're in a worse off position. Well yeah you do. He gets a hundred million dollars? That's a lot of benefit. For a couple days. Yeah, he doesn't get it long enough. It's going to, you know, three or four days. I mean, it's here, it's gone. I mean, you know, just spend the rest of your life. I mean, he's kind of expecting to live more than three or four days. You know? Now, do you see the point? <laughs> what if we get all this stuff here? Really, how, how long does our life last? Well, maybe more than three or four days, but in comparison with eternity? <laughs> no time at all. See how foolish it is to think about the things here and choose those things because relatively speaking they'll be gone in no time. We want the things that last. That's what Moses saw by faith. He didn't see it with his eyes. He, you never seen heaven? Well, he never seen the promised land or anything like that. But he, well it says in verse 27, he saw him who is unseen. He saw the real king God by faith. He really believed and trusted that the Lord, the Lord's blessings were lasting and Pharaoh's were passing. We've got to keep seeing that because it's so easy for us to start thinking of the stuff here as being more permanent than what it is. And then it's hard to give it up. And we need to give up. We'll be ready to give up. I want you to comment on all that. What do you think? I think we have more today than any people have ever had. Wouldn't be surprised in some ways that we do. I mean, I doubt that they even had the opportunity to have some of the things we have today. I mean, are there more pleasures and distractions? And I mean, Wouldn't be safe, surprised. Is that safe to say? Or, or are we like with every generation that says this is the, you know, when we say it's the worst or the great, you know what I'm saying? Every generation thought the same thing. Did I don't know. I mean... It appears to me that there are... There may have been generations where they had more gold or something, but in terms of all the abilities and conveniences and enjoyments and so forth, surely we've got more than any other period in history. I don't know. Which makes it even harder and makes it... <clears throat> and I think it gets to the point that we're starting to weigh it. And I'm not really sure, 
you know, this is all this stuff we've got now. Is it really worth, you know, giving up any of that? That's why it may be more difficult in this day and age. The more you've got, the harder it is to give, give it up. Think about what would what sacrifices are you willing to make? What would you be willing to give up? I mean, you know, early Christians, well, here in Hebrews, I mean, they had their property taken away from them. Would you be willing to have your house, your car, your PlayStation, whatever? You know? That's where I draw the line. (laughs) (laughs) Your internet connection. Uh, What about, would you be willing, I mean, some of them lost their, you know, relationships with others, would you be willing to to lose your family's approval, your friends, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, you know, that sort of thing, you know, your freedom, some of them were put in prison, <laughs> we kind of like our freedom, you know, worst thing about prison, you can't go anywhere, you know, <laughs> you take that, they lost their lives sometimes, would you give that up, would you just, would you be willing to die, I mean, before you get to do all the things you plan to do in your life? I mean, you know, I guess we can sit around and say we would, but why aren't we giving up little things that keep us away from the Lord? You know? I mean, I don't know. I was just talking with a guy today. I'm not sure this is the thing to do, but the thing he has to do, but but he's struggling with some sins really badly. <laughs> you know? Sin just enslaves you. And um, part of the sins involve the television set. And last week when I talked to him, he was like, yeah, you know, he said, I might have to just give up my television set. But this week when I talked to him, he said, boy, I didn't really want to do that. Well, I don't know if that's what he has to do or not, but, but what if the television set was always dragging you down? It was causing you to hurt God over and over again. Would it be that hard to think about giving that up? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, what would you do? This is kind of a weird illustration. What would you do if you got some horrible infection in your finger? And then it spread to your hand. And then it spread to your arm. The doctor says, you give up your arm or you die. Would you? Would you? Mm-hmm. A lot of people have. Yeah, I would. Wouldn't you give up your arm to save your life? That wouldn't be a whole lot to that. I mean, you know, I'd like to kind of enjoy my arm, but, you know, <laughs> compared to my life, you know. You can keep it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it probably wouldn't do me a whole lot of good in the coffin, so. Um, you know, what would we, we, we be willing to give up some really precious things to us in exchange for our relationship with God? I mean, that's what Moses did, by faith. That's really impressive to me. Um, someone has said that the pleasures of a man, uh, well, think about the pleasure of a man who receives a lot of money, but it's all counterfeit. <laughs> and that kind of what we get, we get all this stuff, but it's not really real. <laughs> you know, it doesn't last, it doesn't count. You know, you can't spend it where it really, where we're headed. <laughs> I'm not sure about verse 27. By faith he left 
Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured to seeing him who is unseen. What does he mean he left Egypt? What leaving of Egypt did he have in mind? Didn't he flee from Egypt after he killed the man? Yes. Why did he flee? He didn't want to get executed. Because he feared the wrath of the king. So that's a little bit of a problem, although that might be the first thing you think about. Maybe it's when he left in the Exodus, but in a way he'd already left Egypt long before he went back and left with the people, but that still may be what he's talking about, because it is what he's talking about in 28 and 29. But it's all in chronological order. Everything else goes in chronological order, so it would make sense for him to jump back. Well, he kept the Passover. He didn't yeah. leave the second time until after the Passover. Yeah. There's the Red Sea, and he really didn't leave until they crossed the Red Sea either. So that's a little bit of a complication. I agree. That is a little complicated. Is there another possibility? Yes. I wonder if it's his decision to leave his position and his place that he's been talking about in 24 to 26. Is this just kind of summarizing? He left Egypt, quote-unquote, when he decided to become a hated slave. I don't know. I'm not convinced of any of the three of those for sure. I do think that has some advantages, but I'm not positive. I think you can make a case for any of the three of those. Yeah. I was kind of thinking of in the area of his heart wasn't in Egypt anymore. Right, when he made that choice in his mind. I, I like that view personally, but you know, I'm not sure about it. Presumably, if you were the grandson of Pharaoh, they might have been expecting him to, I don't know, have some place in the government later on. And his hope that I wouldn't, probably not the only hope, but, you know, that he could have been in the line of succession for Pharaoh and, and all of that. So, the wrath of the king was, I've trained you up and now you're leaving? Kind of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah, could be. I mean, he wa- maybe he chose to become identified with the Israelites, not worrying about how upset it would make Pharaoh, or something like that, if, if, if this third position is correct. Megan, you started to speak. Um, I don't know about the wrath of the king part, but maybe... By faith he left Egypt meant that he left Egypt without taking anything with him, trusting that God was going to take care of him because he ran off and didn't have, you know, he was, when he got to the well where he was going, he had to ask for a drink of water even. That was pretty uh, radical, wasn't it? You know, to think about leaving all that he'd had and he was out there with nothing. I mean, all of Moses' story, when you stop and look at it, wow, what an example. And then, you know, he did keep the Passover. That was interesting. Uh, why did he keep the Passover anyway? It tells us. Yeah, so the destroyer of the firstborn wouldn't touch them. Well, you ever seen a destroyer of the firstborn before? How do you know there's going to be a destroyer of the firstborn? Sound like a good fairy tale. How did he know that? God said so. Faith is is the conviction about things not seen. He never seen it, but he believed it because God said so. And then, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea. Now that's interesting too. <laughs> you ever uh, you ever seen a sea just split apart and go across it on dry land? 
He hadn't either. How did he know that was going to happen? Well, God says, here's what you do. So do it. And uh, you just appreciate the uh, faith that he demonstrated, you know, in that. And, and the confidence in something he had not seen. I mean, what, what do you think about going through the Red Sea like that? How would you have felt doing that? Claustrophobic. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting She term. took my answer. Why? I, I don't think so. Though. I don't know. I just think it would be weird to have the waters. It would have to been a why. Why? Yeah, they were yeah, in a single pile. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like a narrow. <laughs> I still think that. Yeah. I wouldn't quite trust these waters are going to stay up here. Well, that might be the case. But. I mean, they were putting their lives in the hands of the one who held the water back. I wonder about the faith of the Egyptians that went in after. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It worked for them. That was their only hope of, I mean, their only faith. Is there a di- that's a good point. Is there a difference between the Israelites there and the Egyptians there? Yes, because the Israelites didn't know. The Egyptians had seen, so they had faith in what they had seen. Yes, <clears throat> but on the other hand... What the Israelites went through by faith. By faith because God said. The Egyptians went through by sight. By sight or even sort of by daring, you know. <laughs> they, they they really didn't have any faith. They didn't have any revelation of God. Right. They just thought it worked, you know, and they were out to get the Israelites and they'd seen them go through and all that. So theirs really wasn't by faith and it didn't work. You see the difference between faith and just you know, brazen, you know, foolhardiness or whatever. Or <laughs> their fear either direction. You know, what's the greater fear? Go back and face Pharaoh and say, we weren't going in after them. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, <laughs> yeah. Go in. Yeah, so, that's right. They had, they had no choice. So comments and questions through verse 29. When we talk about making the choices to do things or give up things, and we read examples, I think we often see those examples as a gunpoint type thing or a sword point or whatever it may have been at the time. All right, make your decision. And we think, oh, boy, that would be easy to do. And, and probably would be easier to do than, like your example of the TV. What is it doing to me? Well, it's just dragging me down a little bit at a time. So, you know, I don't need to make that radical of a decision because it's not at a, a gunpoint. So with anything like that, I think it's harder It's harder to make those decisions, and I'm not sure that they made those decisions in that, uh, necessarily in those situations. I think the examples given may very well have been a gradual type thing, and they made the decision. In other words made the decision to save their soul because in three years they would have lost it if they had kept down that path, but they chose not to and they did whatever was necessary. Well, look at Moses. I mean, his choice to identify with the people of God, there was nobody with a gun to his head making him decide that. He took initiative. He just decided it's better to be with them than with Pharaoh. I mean, that took a lot. It would it would have been different if, you know, they would have held a gun to his head and said, Well, tell me if you believe in God or not. That's not what it was. It was he's deciding, I want to be with these people. As the Hebrews should have decided. 
that they wanted to be with the people of God and uh, not with their uh, Jewish friends. It just seems like our decisions today are are our problems today are are just on the edges, if that makes sense. They're peripheral type decisions. They're things that are th- affecting us, where we don't really see the need to make that radical of a decision because we don't see it as that cut and dried as what this is. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the TV is the perfect one. What what is it doing? Well, I'm not doing my Bible lessons because I'm watching TV. Well, that's just a minor thing, you know. That doesn't that doesn't require getting rid of the TV. Or you can think about decisions relating to, you know, our relationship with other people, like his decision to abandon Pharaoh. You know, our decision to maybe uh, risk our friendship with somebody to stand up for a principle of truth, or something like that. That's you know a similar situation. Sometimes it just doesn't seem like he had any faith. And here we're reading it, how, how the great faith he was. Yet when God told him to go back, he, he almost walked over himself trying to prevent that, it seemed like. Well, but look at Moses. There is a difference between Moses when he saw the burning bush and Moses when he made the decision to identify with the people of God. And that difference amounts to what? 40 years. 40 years of failure. You know, he thought at the age 40, they'd understand he was a deliverer, that he was going to help them. They rejected him. He goes out here and he spends another 40 years of his life totally uselessly. And he's an 80-year-old absolute failure. Could have been, you know, vice Pharaoh. And he's out here as a shepherd for 40 years. Tried to save his people and they wouldn't let him. I think that 40 years of being unproductive worked on him. And I think he didn't have as much faith. So, there's really not a passage that says by faith he went back and let them out. No, no. <laughs> that, that took a little bit more work on the Lord's part. I mean, even great men of faith have their moments. <clears throat> you know, of, of struggle and doubt. Moses did go back, it just the Lord had to right. convince him. And then once in the process, his faith followed through with that. Yes. Other thoughts? Which sort of goes to show your trials help increase your faith. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, they, they test it. They increase it if you persevere through them. Because right. Moses, when he wasn't doing anything, he wasn't being challenged. Was... Other thoughts? Well, that, like, I guess specifically, uh, reminds me of someone like Peter. Yeah, who said, yeah, I'm with you, Lord, you know, and was willing to fight to save Jesus. And then when the rubber met the road, they said, you know, you're, you're with this guy. You know, we recognize your accent. You know, you, you were with him. We saw you with him. No, of course I wasn't. No. And 
you know, that event, when he realized what he'd done, turned him back around. To, and we see him being a, a rock of faith in the book of Acts. Good boy. It almost fits the other example, too. At sword point, he was ready to fight. Yes. Decision. Yes. But later, it was just a little statement type thing that got it, you know, that all he had to do. And that wasn't, didn't require that big decision. That's, that's kind of the point, I guess, I was making to you. You're right. Well, in some ways, the second time he, he was still at sword point, he just didn't have any, he didn't have a weapon in his hand. Because if, if they would have, if he would have said, yeah, I'm with him, uh, they probably would have grabbed him too. But, uh, yeah. Other thoughts? 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Alright, so you got this uh, situation when they come into the land to conquer it. The walls of Jericho. And you remember uh, what happened uh, that caused the walls of Jericho to fall down? The great military plan. Yes. <laughs> Strategic uh, a decision to march around the walls for right seven days. Plan. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what, a, what a foolish way to capture a city. <laughs> uh, had they ever seen a city fall that way? Well, then why did they think this one would? By faith. God said it would. That shows a lot that they did that. And by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish. Rahab's an interesting character in that she's not exactly the uh, same caliber of person you've seen earlier in the chapter. What's different about Rahab? She's a harlot. She's a harlot. She's female. She's female and she's... Not a She's Gentile, yeah. And even she, by faith, she believes that the Israelites will conquer the city and welcome the spies. She is willing to see that this earthly walled city was not her security. It was not the permanent, you know, uh, thing. It was a passing thing. It was, it was not a lasting thing. And that it's better to join God's people to escape the destruction that was coming. You know, she her choice is... You know, this city or God's people. Well, this city is not lasting. God's people, joining with them, will be. And so she makes the decision to, to harbor the uh, spies as opposed to casting her lot with who visually had the stronger defense. And they needed to cast their lot with the Christians and with the Lord and not with who visually seemed the strongest. This is so much applicable to them and to us because we're tempted to cast our lot with the, with the city that we can see. I mean, it goes back to, uh, uh, well, it goes up to 1314. For we, here we do not have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come and back to 11.10, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You know, and, and again, uh, 
in uh, 1116, uh, he has prepared a city for them. So, do you trust the city you can see, or the city that God's prepared, that you can't see, by, but you believe by faith? Comments and questions on those verses. Is the the uh, English translation correct, or is this worded? Doesn't this sound a little strange to you? By faith, the walls. <laughs> well, it's through faith that the walls of Jericho fell down. But it never mentions who had faith there. Right. You notice that? It's right. Yeah. All the others say by faith. So-and-so. You're right. Yeah, it wasn't the walls who had the faith. That's true. <laughs> and if you follow that through, it was by faith that they walked around the walls. Right. Which caused them to fall down. So I just wondered if there was anything in the... I doubt it. I imagine that... It just seems yeah. a little odd to me. Yeah. It's different. Maybe it's more striking. Makes you have to stop and think about it. Wait a minute. And if you picture the city, didn't Rahab live in the wall? Yeah. So when it all fell down, there's this one little pillar. <laughs> I assume so. You know? <laughs> yeah, I assume so. That's pretty impressive. It, it would be. It just crash. It's all flat, and there's these. One of the, one of the dominoes stayed standing. Yeah, one domino. <laughs> the little with the, the little, little red scarlet, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hanging out the window. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Other thoughts. Do we assume then that Rahab was uh, approved by God uh, ultimately, or I don't think this automatically implies that she may very well have been. It's obvious that her faith at that moment was commended here. Yes, I think here all we know is that they did these great things by faith. I don't think he's really looking at ultimate commendation in this chapter. At least not primarily in most of these. That's going to be important for the next verse. Yeah, I think you've got to come to this one the next verse. Pretty yeah. Or can we, I mean, in relation to that, then jumping down to 31, it says all of these having gained approval through their faith. Uh-huh. 39, is that what uh-huh. said? Yes. 39 did not receive what was promised. So then we would have to say they gained approval for that action, for that faith. Yeah, probably so. I don't know how far the all these goes either. There. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that inclusion in this chapter necessarily says that God approved their character, but he approved what they did by faith. Oh, well, let's look at this last section. This is my favorite. I really like this uh, last section. There's a lot of really impressive stuff in this. 32 to 40. And what more shall I say? For time will fail if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, <coughs> others were tortured, not accepting the release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So, he's got a lot more to say, and he just kind of runs through a fast summary. First, of various people, in verse 32. What, the, what, what do you know about those people? Gideon had a huge army of 300 men. Yeah, and he did a great thing by faith. How are the first four people alike? And uh, then the next, well, actually, I guess Samuel is too, but David was not. Um, and as you look at each pair, look, pair them off. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. What do you see in each pair? Chronologically. Is it reversed? Yes. In each pair, the second one, chronologically, is before the first one. So, Barak is before Gideon, Jephthah before Samson, Samuel before David. But they all did some pretty incredible things by faith. I do not think this implies approval of their character. People misuse this passage to say that. In fact... Some of these guys did not really have very good character. Like who? Samson is a notorious example of a man with much potential and, you know, the, uh, the controlling uh, slogan of his life was, I saw a woman. <laughs> who else in that list didn't have very good character? Yeah, Jephthah, absolutely. He's a scoundrel. Gideon, absolutely. You, if you, do you know the story of Gideon, or just just know the what he, what great thing he accomplished? He named his son my father is king. king. Yes, uh, because he pretty much acted like one. He was, you know, he really turned out rotten, you know. So several of these guys were really not good when it was all said and done. Do you have thoughts and comments on the guys in 32? Look at 33. Here's their accomplishments. Look at all the things they did. Conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. I bet you know who that was. Yeah. Some of these seem more general. You can think of several. Uh, but he's the one for that. And then look at the... Uh, the, verse 34, they quenched the power of fire. Who would that have been? Yeah, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. All the great things, the, the results, the deliverances that you get by faith. And you can think of examples for all of those. But I want you to look especially at verse 35. This is the one I really find intriguing. <clears throat> Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Do some of you know what that probably is an allusion to? Well, most 
people think, and I think this is likely true, that this is um, about an event in Israelite history that is not recorded in the Old Testament. Now that shouldn't be surprising because look at verse uh, 37. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. Know anybody in the Old Testament record that was sawn in two? I don't think so. But do you know who was sawn in two? Some of the Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah. Manasseh sawed him in two, according to our historical tradition, not according to the biblical record, but almost everybody thinks that that is the case. And uh, this, this whole thing about others were tortured not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection, most people think is about a story in 2 Maccabees 7. Now, I've, I've got this in a couple different translations, and I really like the newer translation, but it does some things with it that really make him sound like smart Alex, and that's not in the original text. So I'm going to read this thing. This is going to take me a little bit, but I think you will find this quite intriguing. Any of you read this in 2 Maccabees 7? It, is this a series of brothers? Yes, you know that. Some of you know that. But most of you don't, do you? All right, well... We assume this is true. I mean, much of Maccabees were historical events. And since this is also remarked about here, I think this is probably uh, what really happened. And uh, this is in that period where Antiochus Epiphanes is, oh, shoot, and all sorts of horrible things among the Israelites. It came to pass also that seven brothers with their mother were taken and compelled by the king against the law to taste swine's flesh and were tormented with scourges and whips. But one of them that spake first said thus, What would you ask or learn of us? We are ready to die rather than to transgress the laws of our fathers. Then the king, being in a rage, commanded pans and cauldrons to be made hot, which forthwith being heated, he commanded to cut out the tongue of him that spake first, to cut off the utmost part, parts of his body, the rest of his brethren and his mother's look, mother looking on. Now when he was thus maimed in all his members, he commanded him being yet alive to be brought to the fire and to be fried in the pan. And as the vapor of the pan was for a good space dispersed, they exhorted one another with the mother to die manfully, saying thus, The Lord God looks upon us, and in truth has comfort in us. As Moses in his song, which witnessed to their faces, declared, saying, And he shall be comforted in his servants. So when the first was dead after this number, they brought the second to make him a mocking stock. When they pulled off the skin of his head with the hair, they asked him, Will you eat before you be punished throughout every member of your body? But he answered in his own language and said, No. Wherefore he also received the next torment in order as the former did. And when he was at his, the last gasp, he said, You like a fury take us out of this present life, but the king of the world will raise us up, who have died for his laws into everlasting life. After him was the third made a mocking stock. When he was required, he put out his tongue, and that right soon, holding forth his hands manfully, said courageously, These I had from heaven, and for his laws I despised them, and from him I hope to receive them again. And so much that the king, and they that were with him, marveled at the young man's courage, for that he nothing regarded the pains. Now when this man was dead also, they tormented and mangled the fourth in like manner. So when he was ready to die, he said thus, It is good being put to death by men to look for hope from God to be raised up again by him. As for you, you shall have no resurrection to life. Afterward they brought the fifth also and mangled him. Then looked he unto the king and said, You have power over men, you are corruptible. You do what you will, yet think not that our nation is forsaken of God. But abide a while and behold his great power, how he will torment you and your seed. 
After him, they also they brought the sixth, who, being ready to die, said, Be not deceived without cause, for we suffer these things for ourselves, having sinned against our God. Therefore, marvelous things are done unto us. But don't think that takes in hand to strive against God, that you shall escape unpunished. But the mother was marvelous above all, and worthy of honorable memory. For when she saw her seven sons slain within the space of one day, she bare it with a good courage because of the hope that she had in the Lord. Yea, she exhorted every one of them in her own language, filled with courageous spirits, and stirring up her womanish thoughts with a manly stomach, she said unto them, I cannot tell how you came into my womb, for I neither gave you breath nor life, neither was it I that formed the members of every one of you, but doubtless the creator of the world, who formed the generation of man, and found out the beginning of all things, will also of his own mercy give you breath and life again, as you now regard not your own selves for his law's sake. Now Antiochus, thinking himself despised and suspecting it to be a reproachful speech, while the youngest was yet alive, did not only exhort him by words, but also assured him with oaths that he would make him both a rich and a happy man if he would turn from the laws of his fathers, and that he would also take him for his friend and trust him with affairs. But when the young man would in no case hear him, the king called his mother and exhorted her that she would counsel the young man to save his life. And when he had exhorted her with many words, she promised him that she would counsel her son. But she, bowing herself toward him, laughing the cruel tyrant to scorn, spake in her country language on this manner, O my son, have pity on me, that bare you nine months in my womb, and gave you such three years, and nourished thee, and brought you up unto this age, and endured the troubles of education. I beseech you, my son, look upon the heaven and the earth, and all that is therein. Consider that God made them of things that were not. And so was mankind made likewise. Fear not this tormentor, but being worthy of your brethren, take your death, that I may receive you again in mercy with your brethren. While she was still speaking these words, the young man said, Whom wait you for? I will not obey the king's commandment, but I will obey the commandment of the law that was given unto our fathers by Moses. And you uh, that has been the author of all mischief against the Hebrews shall not escape the hands of God, for we suffer because of our sins. And though the living Lord be angry with us for a little while for our chastening and correction, yet shall he be at one again with his servants. But you, O godless man, and all other the most wicked, be not lifted up without a cause, nor puffed up with uncertain hopes, lifting up your hand against the servants of God. For you have not yet escaped the judgment of Almighty God, who sees all things. For our brethren, who have now suffered a short pain, are dead under God's covenant of everlasting life. But you, through the judgment of God, shall receive just punishment for your pride. But I, as my brethren, offer up my body and life for the laws of our fathers, beseeching God that he would speedily be merciful unto our nation, and that you, by torments and plagues, may confess that he alone is God, and that in me and my brethren the wrath of the Almighty, which is justly brought upon our nation, may cease. Then the king, being in a rage, handed him, handled him worse than all the rest, and took it grievously that he was mocked. So this man died undefiled and put his whole trust in the Lord. Last of all, the sons... The son. Uh, last of all, after the sons, the mother died. What do you think? I think that's what he has reference to. And he says, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And I think that's a great story. And just, would you do that? think of all that these people have suffered. I mean, all the things he says, look at verse 36 and 37 and 38. 
That's just amazing. You know, would you go through all those things? I mean, it's incredible what God's people have done. You know, I like the end of verse 37 and verse 38. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. You know, I remember hearing, you may have heard me say this, but a number of years ago, probably about uh, 15 years ago, I heard a guy named Bob Small. He's a brother. I don't even know anything about him now. But he had spent some time in China preaching the gospel. And he was telling about a guy named Peter. I was this name given by Christians who um, the Chinese government had found out about one of their churches. And they were, they were torturing and trying to get different brethren to squeal on their brethren as to who, who was who and so forth. This guy went to a cave because he was afraid that their torture might cause him to betray his brethren. And he, was li- he lived there for several months. It was really damp and all it was hurting his health. And, you know, I don't think he had enough food and all that. But he was just living in a cave to keep away from the authorities so that he wouldn't betray his brethren. And, uh, you know, I mean, there are people in our day and time who suffer greatly for their faith in Christ. You know, and, and then we have a hard time, you know, giving up little things. We have a hard time if somebody laughs at us. Somebody thinks we're, you know, fanatical. You know, do we really understand the kind of faith that our fathers have had? I mean, you know, they really suffered. <laughs> the kind of things we've suffered. <laughs> they don't look like much compared to that woman and her sons. Comments and thoughts. I really like the parenthetical phrase there in 38, man of whom the world was not worthy. Indeed. <laughs> the world despises them, but the truth is the world is not even worthy of them. That's the thing. When they laugh at us, when they think we're stupid, they they think all... <laughs> the, the truth is the opposite. Do you want... Would you trade places with your coolest non-Christian friend. The guy who everybody looks up to, the guy who's got it all, the guy who's popular. Would you trade places with him? One day, you know he would give anything if he could trade places with you. That will be too late. I think it's interesting in verse 37, there's stoning being sawn into being tempted and being put to death with a sword. And three of those sounds really, really horrible. Being stoned, being sawn into, and being killed with a sword. But on the same level with those, in that same little piece, is the being tempted. And it's kind of interesting that, that that's in there on mm-hmm. par with the others. That also is a trial. That also is something to be endured. And that by faith you can get through. Mm-hmm. Good point. Does anybody have the NIV? I do. Does it include they were tempted? No. That's why I was lost. <laughs> I was like, what? One early manuscript does not contain they were tempted according to my margin. Mm-hmm.
that ought to inspire us. He wanted it to inspire them. To be willing to go through hardship, persecution, and difficulty and stay faithful and firm for the Lord. We need to be more tough. We need to accept stronger challenges and face more difficult afflictions for Christ. It really doesn't make any difference how hard it gets. And we need to quit feeling sorry for ourselves and be be strong enough in the Lord to face anything that there is. I mean, you know, what about what about some of you younger uh, people, which most of you are, uh, than me, I guess I'm the oldest one in here, so all of you younger people, um, you know, what about if you have an opportunity someday to prepare yourself and go some place to preach the gospel where there is danger, where they don't like Christians, where it could land you in torture or even death. Would you do it? You know, I mean, that may happen in this country, but I mean, there needs to be courageous people who are willing to go to places where you might have a short life expectancy if you preach the gospel. The early Christians were willing to do a whole lot of, you know, risking of things for the cause of Christ. Other thoughts? Have you seen the movie? It's maybe called The End of the Spear. I have heard of it. I have not seen it. I, I watched that. Was and it good? It was very good. And you see people who go into a uh, an area risking their lives. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, what in the world are they doing? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is just ludicrous. They're just walking in and just basically going to give their lives up for for what? But by the end of the movie, it brought you to the point that they were doing the best thing. Yeah. Because they had a love for God and they wanted people to be saved. Kind of made you ashamed yeah. later. Well, you know, it was very interesting. Uh, this has been three or four years ago. Whenever, um, I guess three years ago, maybe two, I don't know. Alan Malone did the, the talk around Vietnam at uh, FC. And uh, several of the guys in Kyle's dorm room that night and I were talking about, you know, the idea of going overseas and preaching the gospel. And one person asked, I thought, a really good question. He brought up the movie and said, you know, what should you think? I mean, you know, should you at some point think about preserving your life to preach more so more people could hear? Should you go, you know, should you just go ahead and sacrifice your life or whatever? I thought that was a really good point because I knew the person. And the person was not saying that because he was worried about living. And that's a practical point, and there's some things to learn on both sides of that. I think there are some times when preserving our health is also reasonable to do. Paul would flee in some situations. Jesus encouraged them to flee in some situations. Obviously, Paul's fleeing <laughs> didn't mean he wasn't willing to go to things that were dangerous uh, and uh, undergo a lot. So, uh, but, but, you know, that's the way we ought to think. It's just, what would the Lord want me to do? Not, I care whether I live or not. I mean, who cares what you live or not? 
if, if, we're, if we're honoring God in our death, then praise God. You know, that if, if, if he'd be more honored by my dying or by my risking my life, then why not? The words you shared from this Second uh, uh, Maccabee 7 showed the, the, uh, the blessing of death in that it, it was bringing them where they were wanting to go. And I saw the increasing courage, too, that as each one went on, you would have thought perhaps it might have shaken the others. But it seemed like with each death, they just got stronger. And should should that be our model, that we see others like us who are battling and triumphing, and it gives us greater confidence? Amen. Most of you heard that Vietnam speech or tape or whatever. That's really cool. And, you know, talking about that 13-year-old boy that was tortured practically for not eating the idol food. So in 39 and 40 he says that, you know, though they, they gained approval through their faith, they did not really reach the goal themselves in this life because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. You know, the fact is that their reaching their ultimate goal depended on the sacrifice of Christ. And God made it to where we all crossed the finish line together. You know, to where God's people of every age attain their goal together. So they, they gained approval, but they didn't actually reach the ideal until the death of Christ. And, and so we are all perfected together. They are, are great examples for us as they look forward to what we now, you know, have much more concretely through the sacrifice of Christ. If they could do that, wow, with all we know, why can't we? Why can't we put up with anything to serve the Lord? And as he says in 12.1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now what he means is not that there are you know, some, some guys up in the stands watching us race. He's talking about all these people in chapter 11 that have borne witness to the value and the outcome of a life of faith. You've got all those to look at. Why can't you run your race with endurance no matter how hard it gets. So this, the end of chapter 11 is a beautiful tie-in. Alright, comments and questions on chapter 11. The phrase, better resurrection, in verse 35? Yes. Does, I think that... That doesn't mean that, you know, if you live a faithful life and die in your sleep, you get resurrection grade A, and if you are tortured, you get, you know, A+. plus. No, I think it means their, re their release would have been a resurrection. They were under a death sentence. If they relent and eat the pork, then they get raised, they get released. But they're looking for a better resurrection, a resurrection after they die. Yeah. 
comments and questions. All right, let's read these uh, first three verses. We'll talk about them a little bit. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. With so many witnesses in a great cloud all around us, we too then should throw off everything that weighs us down and the sin that clings so closely, and with perseverance keep running in the race which lies ahead of us. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who leads us in our faith and brings it to perfection. For the sake of the joy which lay ahead of him, he endured the cross, disregarding the shame of it, and has taken his seat at the right of God's throne. Think of the way he persevered against such opposition from sinners, and then you will not lose heart and come to grief. All right, we've got a race to run. We've got the witnesses of those who've lived by faith in the past. But what have we got to do to run this race effectively? Fix our eyes. Even before that. Lay aside. What? The encumbrance. Of what? Uh, sin cripples good running. We've got to get rid of the sin out of our life and put it away decisively. It will keep us from running effectively. You see it all the time. You know, it's amazing. You see somebody who's struggling with... Uh, well, I've been talking with a guy who's, who's really confused about, you know, what the Bible says about various things. And I knew it. just took a little while to get to it. His problems various sins that he's harboring in his life. You take somebody who just doesn't... Ah, they just don't ever seem to be able to get much out of their Bible study. They just don't feel close to God in their prayer life. You know... I, 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 I remember at the camp, there was a, 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 a guy who was talking to me, and, and he said, you know, at the beginning of the camp, that, that he, for the last few days, he just felt like he didn't feel so close to God when he prayed. He just didn't feel like God was really there, and God was really answering him, God was really listening to him. I said, what changed in the last few days? <laughs> well, I said he committed. You know, that made him feel that way. I mean, the thing, nine times out of ten, when you see somebody who just doesn't seem to be running the race well, you trace it back, and there's a sin problem that keeps them from running the race well. You can't run it well when you're harboring sin. You've got to get rid of that. Once you get rid of that, <laughs> you can run that race a whole lot better. I mean, it's like, you know, think of sin as like being a, you know, Charlie horse in your leg or whatever. You know, you just can't, you can't run good. You know, it just hobbles you up, cripples you up. So get rid of it. And run with endurance. You know, this is a marathon. You've got to have stamina and discipline and commitment to keep going until the end. And fix your eyes on Jesus. Look at the finish line. You know, uh, David should tell us more about running. But, uh, you know, you've got to concentrate on the goal. You've got to think about where you're headed. And look at Jesus. And see what he's done and let him be the inspiration for you. Look at all he endured. Look at all he suffered. And yet he was focused on accomplishing his father's will despite all that he went through. And then he gained the reward. So, he says, you shouldn't grow weary and lose heart. As he says in verse 4, you've not even been killed for the cause of Christ yet. <laughs> what are you worried about? <laughs> I mean, all you've done is gone to prison, had some of your stuff taken away, you know, been afflicted, and, you know, whatever. But you haven't been killed. You've gotten off easy. Run the race with endurance. Stick in there and be tough. You know, this, 
That's a tremendous passage. I mean, there's nothing you couldn't say enough good about that. Comments and thoughts. It's interesting that if if the idea is of fixing your eyes on Jesus is sort of like you're looking him in the eye while you're running, so that everything else goes away and all you're doing is running. If you have the sin entangling you, you're not going to be able to lift your eyes to look him in the face. You just can't do it. Mm -hmm. Good point. The uh, paraphrase that calls itself the message, instead of saying fixing our eyes on Jesus, says study how he did it. Mm. <laughs> Which is interesting. He's, he's our hero. <laughs> We've got to translate these things into our own practical challenges in our life. You know, I, I, you know, when you try to teach these things, they seem like you can never teach them as well as they ought to be taught. And I think we just got to think about, okay, what does this mean for me? What are the challenges I'm facing? And how am I going to have to face them? How can I face them with the same faith that these people did in the end of chapter 11? How can I run this race like Jesus did? You know, with that kind of endurance, with that kind of commitment, with that kind of toughness to do the right thing, no matter what the sacrifice is. You know, what challenges am I facing? What sacrifices do I need to make? You know, what do I need to be willing to put up with to keep running that race with endurance? Stick to the salad. Let us, let us. <laughs> I like I like that that those you see that in twelve one you see it back in uh, ten twenty two twenty three twenty four those are those Don't are things that down, <laughs> <laughs> that's really good those are those are things that if we can do those those I think we can be what God wants us to be. That sounds like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I've been inspired by uh, great ones. Of, uh, this, your references there, you referred back to what? Yeah, 22 to 24. Yeah. Okay. And 12 more. I've been trying to memorize uh, 22 to 24 to uh, use it in prayers. Other comments? Alright, why don't we stop here then, and here's my plan. I won't be here next week. And the following week, I haven't told Shane this, I won't, we, Shane probably, we'll probably just come for the 515 study, because I'll be coming back from Pennsylvania that day. So, I'll pick you up, but you won't actually teach yourself. Well, so. Right, so, so we'll be so two weeks from now. We'll do the this stuff.